Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with someone from the U.S. Department of Agriculture about invasive species. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, Brittany Bailey has information about Intel's project in New Albany and feedback on the plans from local politicians. She'll have a segment that answers questions about who should get the new COVID booster that's now available. Kevin Landers talks to the superintendent of a school district near Bell Fountain that is considering arming teachers and staff. And we'll hear from human trafficking survivors who gathered recently at the Ohio State House. And in the second half hour, I'll talk with Rita Sorenen, president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me is Van Pickler. She is the National Policy Advisor for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, We're going to talk about invasive species or invasive pests. What are they? These pests, um, we want to highlight the impact of invasive plant pests and diseases, which what they have on our plant health nationwide. And invasive pests are also known as hungry pests. They have no natural predators and left unchecked can quickly spread. So this is about outreach and asking all Americans to take simple actions to help reduce their spread. Okay. And I guess uh, an example in Ohio that a lot of folks would be aware of, because we've heard so much about it over the last 10 years or so, would be the emerald ash borer. That's an example of what you're talking about, right? Yeah, so Emmert ash borer is right now state regulated in Ohio, and um, they attack ash trees. Okay. Can you talk about some other invasive species that folks in Ohio should keep an eye on? Yes. So Asian longhorn beetle, um, that attacks hardwood trees. There's also invasive defoliating moths, and they attack more than 300 species of trees and shrubs. You can report any findings of their egg masses, caterpillars, adult moths, or defoliated trees to federal or state agricultural officials. We're asking all Americans to uh, be on the lookout for invasive pests. Uh, We have a website called HungryPest.com. You can go onto the website and look for signs and tips on how to join me in the fight to leave all hungry pests behind. Okay. Another that I've been hearing about lately is the spotted lanternfly, which I understand is posing a threat to the wine industry because of uh, vineyards. And in fact, there was a new report in Cleveland uh, just this past week here in September that the moths are being spotted in Cleveland, and they're, they're, I guess they're very colorful, bright red, white, and black moths. Yeah, so for spotted lanternfly, um, in Ohio, you, there is a natural uh, suitable habitat for spotted lanternfly to exist. So you definitely want to be on the lookout for spotted lanternfly and report any signs. And spotted lanternfly feeds on a wide range of fruit, ornamental and wood trees, and in particular, a tree called Tree of Heaven. That's its preferred host. So one of the things we're asking is for folks to please uh, make sure you're, you're not carrying any uh, plants or products between states, and also to buy or gather firewood on site or purchase certified heat-treated firewood. There's very simple actions we're asking all Americans to join the USDA in taking to ensure that these invasive pests uh, do not spread. 
talking with Van Pickler from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And that is uh, one of the ways that uh, I guess the emerald ash borer, as an example, was spreading is that people were taking firewood from one area of the state to another and maybe, you know, dumping it on the ground for a, a campfire. And, and there are these insects inside the wood that get out and then they, they spread into the area woods from there. Yes, that's correct. So, you know, again, there's some tips that we have. Um, I know I love to spend time around the bonfire with my with my kids. And so I'm really cautious around making sure I do not move untreated firewood. Um, you can buy certified heat treated firewood. There's um, a label that tells us that it's been certified and heat treated. You can buy regular wood locally, or you can even gather firewood on site if it's permitted at your campground. What's the biggest uh, problem on your radar right now in terms of, you know, ash trees have been dying by the by the millions, I guess, around the country. Is, is there any new threat or, or a particularly big threat that USDA is worried about right now? Um, you know, on HungryPest.com, um, there's a banner for a, a new pest called uh, box tree moss, um, and right now it's in found in New York. So um, that's something we're paying very close attention to, and we're asking the public to join us in, you know, early detection of all the invasive pests um, and the hungry pests so that you can help us to reduce its spread. And I don't know if this is... Part of this or not, because I think this might be more of a disease that trees are getting, but there's a a problem with American beech trees. Are you aware of that or is that part of uh, what you're talking about? So um, that is not federally regulated. Um, So, um, you know, when you're talking about a disease, there is a disease on our Hungry hungry Pest website called Sudden Oak Death. Um, So... You know, with that and any disease in trees or plants, one of the things we definitely don't want to be doing that's an action is uh, definitely do not take any plants from one location to the other. Or if you're out walking around and there's mud and soil that you get in your boots or in your sneakers, we're asking you to uh, please remove them. But if you're concerned, you can call your state plant health director, which is a USDA employee, for more information on local plant pests or diseases. On, On hungry pests, we have information around who to contact in your state. Okay. And what is the big thing people should be looking for? Should they be looking for holes in trees or or odd-looking insects or what? Yeah, so it depends on the the, um, the invasive pest, the hungry pest. So for emerald ash borer or for Asian longhorn beetle, you want to be looking for uh, D-shaped holes. You want to be looking for also lots of sawdust at the bottom of the tree. And to uh, confirm what you're seeing is a true sign, you can always contact the local USDA plant health director or the Ag Extension Service in your state. Okay. Does global warming have anything to do with uh, what's going on with all this, or does it enhance the threat from invasive species? Well, you know, weather can magnify the impact of invasive pests. So as climate change can increase the level of the plant pest infestations, 
and also disease infection. So that's why it's so important to have early detection and for your listeners to join us in the fight so that we can leave all hungry pests behind. And, you know, thehungrypest.com, that website is an amazing resource for everyone to use. There's also education tools and resources. Okay, Van Pickler again. She's with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks so much for your time today. Sure. We put our lives on the line for our country. We braved the unknown. We did what we were told. And we lit up. Our cigarette packs were as valuable as the packs on our back. Maybe more. At one point, cigarettes were part of our daily ration. Smoke them if you got them. And boy, we were smoking them. Bumming a smoke was the norm. It was an escape from the reality of dirt, sweat, and forgetting how many days you were so far from home. Never had to worry so long as you had a light. And the smoking lamp was lit. If that was you then, get your lungs screened now. Surviving lung cancer starts with a scan. Learn more at ScreenYourLungs.org. And thank you for your service. This PSA was made possible by industry funding and guidance from lung cancer patient groups. My muscles ached. I was tired all the time. My son had a full-blown asthma attack. It came out of nowhere. The unsettling thing about some symptoms is... I had a fever and these terrible headaches. You don't always know what's causing them. It was Lyme disease from a tick bite. I had Zika virus from a mosquito. He had a reaction to cockroach allergens. Threats to your health can come from unexpected places. Get the facts. Visit PestWorld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS-10TV, here's Brittany Bailey. From their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Thanks so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Brittany Bailey in for Tracy Townsend. The work on the Intel plant in Licking County is now in a new stage. President Biden made a visit for that official groundbreaking. The $20 billion investment, the largest in state history, is located in Licking County. Now, when the two factories known as FABs open in 2025, the facility will employ 3,000 people. You know, it's fitting to break ground for America's future here in Ohio. Think about it. There's kind of a tradition here. The Wright brothers, Neil Armstrong, John Glenn, they defined America's spirit, a spirit of daring and innovation. Pat Chase laid out Intel's vision that builds on that legacy. A brand new $20 billion campus, 7,000 construction jobs, union construction jobs, 3,000 full-time jobs, They'll pay an average of 135000 a year and not all of them will build. And here's a critical piece. Intel is using a project labor agreement for this investment. For the folks at home, these are agreements that contractors, subcontractors, and unions put in place before construction begins. They ensure major projects are handled by well-trained, well-prepared, highly skilled workers. 
KNTV's Kevin Landers spoke with Ohio State Senator Jay Hottinger, who represents this area, about what this project means for Ohio and the local economy and some of the concerns that come with it. In terms of the biggest concerns you have about a project like this, obviously people who live in Johnstown are concerned about how their way of life is going to change. This is going to go from an agrarian community to an industrial community. There's also concerns about having enough Ohioans to fill all the jobs. Where do you, uh, where do you land on those? So, look, uh, I, I think this is a game changer. And are there going to be some pains and there's going to be some growing pains? Absolutely. I think whenever there is change, uh, some of those things uh, are going to occur. There's going to be changes in, in infrastructure. Some two-lane roads right now will be five-lane or six-lane roads uh, in the future. But the, you know, the, the acreage that Intel has purchased, they have purchased all of that in anticipation of growing. So it's not like they're going to be coming in and purchasing, you know, new or additional lands. Uh, this is already in the, you know, the vicinity of the New Albany Business Park. And so there's already a lot of uh, neighbors, when I say neighbors, corporate neighbors uh, that are there uh, in that vicinity. I think in a decade, uh, there could be seven or 8,000 Intel employees there. But, but I forget what's in the New Albany Business Park now. I, I want to say there's like 26,000 or something. So this is significant, uh, no doubt about it. Uh, but I don't think that it's going to uh, have a, a significant adverse effect uh, on the families uh, that, that live nearby. I think there's, there's some challenges. And when leaders and communities step up and, and meet those challenges, I think the, the potential and the upside is really significant. And I've had a chance to visit a couple of Intels, Kevin, and um, they're, they're really good corporate citizens. They're great neighbors. Uh, I went off campuses and, uh, and started talking to people. And uh, if, if people knew that Intel was even in the vicinity, their reaction was that they're, they're great corporate citizens. They're great partners in our community. And so my biggest concern right now, candidly, uh, I mean, uh, obviously, we have some infrastructure that's going to have to be put in. It's going to be a couple billion dollars. There's going to be a lot of orange barrels. There's going to be a lot of construction. Um, and there's, 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 there's inconveniences uh, that come with that. But I think longer term, my biggest concern is uh, housing and, you know, where are people going to live? You know, it's not just Intel, but it's their suppliers. I know that there's at least 15 suppliers that are already looking at Central Ohio, looking to follow uh, Intel to Central Ohio. And it could be uh, as many as uh, 30 or 40 suppliers that, that are coming to Ohio. That was Kevin Landers reporting. The money from the CHIPS Act played a big role in Intel's future in Ohio. This past week, the White House released a strategy on how the $50 billion in CHIPS Act funding will be spent. Now, the main goal is to establish domestic production of leading-edge semiconductors. Right now, the U.S. makes 0% of the world's supply. Now, here's a breakdown of how that $50 billion will be spent. $28 billion will go to large-scale investments in manufacturing. $10 billion will go to increasing the amount of chips made in the U.S. that are used in vehicles and medical devices. $11 billion will will go into U.S. research and development into semiconductor technology. Now, the timing of all of this funding is still being worked out, but the U.S. Secretary of Commerce said that the impact is happening right now. Gonna, I can't answer you 
you know, how quickly exactly a specific chip is going to come. But the point is, you're already seeing it. Global Wafers made an announcement, $5 billion investment in Texas. So I'd say immediately, the, the effects are immediately being felt. Franklin County Commissioner Erica Crawley says the CHIPS Act money will also bring tech, tech jobs rather to women in central Ohio. In Ohio, less than 3% of uh, folks in tech are women uh, and women of color. And so as we look at the CHIPS Act or we look at how Intel is coming and what that's going to provide for central Ohio, we want women, especially women of color, to be able to access those jobs. Now, to bring Intel to central Ohio, the state dished out plenty of cash and incentives. It took nearly $2 billion to close the deal, and that money comes from taxpayers. Ohio will pay $600 million in direct cash in the form of a grant that is conditional on Intel finishing the plants. $600 million is being spent on infrastructure. That number can be broken down into two big categories, roads and water. Now, there is a need to upgrade streets getting to the plan, plant. rather. Some $205 million is being spent on local and state streets. There's also a need for new water lines and water treatment plants specifically tailored to the process of building a semiconductor plant. And that is costing around $400 million. It's estimated Intel could get upwards of $600 million in tax credits, depending upon the number of people employed in central Ohio. Well, Intel also is part of the Building a Better Ohio Forum in Washington, D.C. this past week. The meeting was part of a new initiative by the Biden administration to bring state leaders to D.C. Ohio leaders discussed how funding in four major federal projects will be used. Now, all four were created by the Biden administration, and those include the American Rescue Plan, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Bill, and the CHIPS Act. Franklin County Board President Erica Crawley also spoke at that panel. She touted major programs created by the Franklin County Commissioners. The commissioners have used $250 million on community recovery, $22 million on child care services, $12 million on workforce programming, and $9.5 million for the Mid-Ohio Food Collective. Crawley also mentioned rental assistance for teachers and child care providers. We cannot afford to lose any more child care um, educators and teachers. We don't want them to leave the workforce. We want them to stay in the workforce. Um, and until we can increase wages in the state of Ohio, that is how we're supporting them. The city of Columbus also was mentioned during the forum. The city used American Rescue Plan funding with $24 million going to human services, $5 million in small business support, $39 million in rental services, and $22 million in youth programs to keep children away from crime. We checked in with Mayor Andrew Ginther after he was part of that discussion in D.C. And we're contemplating a partnership for a dramatic expansion of after-school programming to make sure young people get what they need. They stay on the right track. We've got them back in school now. Now we need to invest in them and make sure they realize they have a great future for success in Columbus and Central Ohio. Mayor Andrew Ginther also talked about how this money is helping with affordable housing options. Columbus City Council President Shannon Hardin also was in D.C. And Hardin says one local program that is gaining plenty of attention from the White House is Columbus Promise. Our young people are prepared for the, for the jobs of the future. They will have the credentials, the background, the education that they need uh, to be successful in our city in the future uh, in, in Columbus. So we're really excited about that. And the White House is extremely excited. 
The Columbus Promise was announced back in November and is aimed at providing tuition-free education at Columbus State Community College for Columbus City Schools graduating seniors. This week, this past week, the city of Upper Arlington sent a strong message to anyone who tries to interfere with the November election. Council passed an ordinance to make it a crime to harass an election official. 10TV's Kevin Landers explains why this issue isn't just a concern locally, but on the national level as well. Perhaps nowhere in the United States did poll worker threats make more news than in Georgia when then-President Donald Trump called that state Secretary of State an enemy of the people when election results of 2020 didn't go his way. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. Upper Arlington City Council Member John Coolwitz says poll worker threats is a real problem and has proposed a poll worker protection ordinance to protect election workers where he votes. There have been reports from other Ohio counties of poll worker harassment in the past couple of years. The president of the National Association of Secretaries of State reported two weeks ago that they are seeing increased levels of threats to election officials. Under the proposed ordinance, the crime of poll worker harassment would be punishable with a misdemeanor and no less than three days in jail. Harassment is defined under the measure as communication. That would threaten, harass, coerce, menace, abuse a, an elections official or a poll worker in the performance of his or her duties. We spoke with the commissioner of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission about the issue of election worker harassment nationally. This is something that we've seen uh, obviously growing uh, out of, um, you know, former President Trump's big lie and, and sort of the disinformation campaigns. And it's a real problem and it's taking a toll uh, on the public servants who run our elections. A Brendan Center for Justice survey earlier this year found one in five poll workers was very or somewhat unlikely to continue serving through 2024. Upper Arlington City Council believes its poll worker protection ordinance will prepare itself for what's shaping up to be a series of contentious elections. What we do know is that we have a fairly intense series of elections coming up, not just this fall in Ohio, but next year there's likely to be an a, a initiative for reproductive rights on the ballot. And the, the year after that, in 2024, there's going to be what is obviously going to be a very intense presidential election. So it's not meant to, this is not speaking to the conduct of, of one side or the other. It's, it's speaking to everybody. We, uh, if you're thinking of disrupting an election, don't come to Upper Arlington because we take it very seriously here. We talked with both Senate candidates and asked why they deserve your vote. J.D. Vance. I think we need to get back to basic common sense in this country. We need to stop going after the police and start going after violent criminals. We need to close the southern border so we stop the flow of fentanyl coming into our country, killing people in Ohio. And we really got to get the inflation under control. Tim Ryan. We're working our, our uh, rear ends off to earn people's votes. And that same mentality will be when I get in office. We're going to work hard, grind it, uh, work in a bipartisan way. Everyone's going to be welcome into my office. Everybody's voice will be heard. Former President Trump officially endorsed Republican Governor Mike DeWine in his bid for re-election. Governor DeWine tweeted that he and Lieutenant Governor John Husted are grateful for President Trump's former President Trump's support. His Democratic challenger, Nan Whaley, responded saying after avoiding being seen with the former president for years, he's happy to take his endorsement now that he needs it. The most recent polling does show DeWine is ahead of Whaley by 15 percent. Right now in Ohio, teachers can be armed in the classroom. So up next, we're hearing from the superintendent of a local school district that is considering making that security change. And new COVID-19 booster shots are now available in Ohio. We're verifying if you need one.
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. When you're high, you feel different. You think different, you talk different, you draw different, you listen to music different, but you probably knew that. Problem is, you also drive different and not in a good way. That's why driving high is illegal everywhere. So if you're high, just don't drive. Make a plan to get a sober ride. Because if you feel different, you drive different. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Brittany Bailey, courtesy of 10TV. Right now, school is back in session in Ohio, and at least one district is considering allowing teachers to be armed in the classroom. We're talking about Benjamin Logan Schools in Logan County. 10TV's Richard Solomon talked to district leaders there about this decision. Just 10 miles outside of Bell Fountain. We're kind of out in no man's land. You'll see more cornfields than people. But on this soil lays the framework that builds the future. And it's about 1,700 kids, grades K through 12. John Shu is the superintendent of Benjamin Logan Schools. In the near future, this small district may make a big decision, a decision that Shu believes will make it safer. I never thought when I was a superintendent 21 years ago that I would even be considering something like this. But times have changed, and uh, a dose of reality is that if it can happen in all the rest of these small school districts around, around the country, it can happen at Benjamin Logan. And I just want to make sure that if that time comes, that we're going to be as prepared as possible to protect innocent kids and innocent teachers. At the start of the summer, the governor signed House Bill 90 a bill allowing school employees who complete specific training to carry a handgun on school grounds. Now, it could be reality in Benjamin Logan schools. Shu says the board has not yet approved the response team, but has approved the required training. He says the state must also approve the curriculum. Shu says 22 staff members in the district, that's teachers, cooks, secretaries, have volunteered. It's a possible safety measure the district could have, but something Shu hopes they'll never have to use. The most important thing is to guarantee to parents that their kids will come to school safe and go home safe. The possibility of having an armored response team within the schools to Logan County Sheriff Randall Dodds simply makes sense. Oh, absolutely. The training includes proper gun safety, trauma response, first aid, de-escalation, and other areas of safety. On average, the sheriff says he can only have about three deputies working a day in Logan County. And he says it takes nearly 15 minutes to get to the schools from Bell Fountain. Children are, they're precious to us and they're vital and it's utmost importance. Probably the number one thing that we should be really responsible. It's way up on that list. The district has hired two additional school resource officers to be placed in its three schools. They've had one SRO in the past. This is a decision that some parents agree with. The quicker somebody can take out that threat, the the more people are going to be saved. This is Todd Shields, Lance Predmore, and Cedar Schneider. 
They all have children and grandchildren throughout the schools. The sheriff says school members who are being considered for the response team have been working with sheriff deputies. This is not a part of the required 24 hours of training that employees will have to have. Sheriff Dodds and Shu say if the board approves the response team, those who are part of it will have hundreds of hours of training. Hopefully it'll just all be a deterrent and we'll never have to yeah, run into the situation where we have a tragedy. It was Richard Solomon reporting. Shoes tells Richard that volunteers can start the training once the state approves the curriculum. Fall is on the way, and it has the Ohio Department of Health concerned. Hear what doctors say you need to do to stop the spread of COVID-19. Plus, Sharon Frazier, Haley Scandalino. Graduation usually means a new beginning. Up next, though, we're meeting women who are getting more than just a new beginning. They're getting a second chance at life. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. One in four Americans have a disability. I'm one of them. I'm also a working mom who cares deeply about making sure every child with a disability thrives by getting their access needs met. We've got a trusted ally by our side. Easter Seals provides children and families the foundation for lifelong success through early learning programs, skills training, and prep for college and career. That's my Easter Seals. Make it yours. Join us at EasterSeals.com. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip. It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov. If you turn 65 this year, you are eligible for Medicare. To help you understand your choices and possibility of financial assistance, the Ohio Department of Insurance is holding Welcome to Medicare events across the state. So join us at a free event near you. Make sure your plan suits your budget and your needs. For more information, contact the Ohio Department of Insurance at 1-800-686-1578 or go online at insurance.ohio.gov. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Brittany Bailey, courtesy of 10TV. It's a time when all of us will likely begin spending more of our time indoors. Ohio leaders are getting ready for another season of learning to live with COVID-19. Right now, new boosters are available here in Ohio. We'll show you where you can get yours in just a minute. But first, who's eligible for them? Our Verified team is breaking it down for you. Here's Abby Marico. Our sources are the FDA and the CDC and a conversation with Dr. Stuart Ray of Johns Hopkins. Who can get an additional booster? The CDC recommends an updated shot for adults and teens. Moderna's bivalent booster is approved for those age 18 and up, Pfizer's for those 12 and up. What if you've never gotten COVID-19 shots before? The bivalent booster is meant for now to work with the initial COVID-19 vaccine series. So get those shots first. The current authorization for these bivalent vaccines 
lenses only for boosting. However, this new shot replaces the earlier boosters. So even if you didn't get a follow-up third or fourth shot before, then this is the booster for you. When is a good time to get the shot? It's FDA approved if it's been at least two months since your most recent COVID-19 vaccine, your primary vaccine series, or an earlier booster shot. Dr. Ray says it's hard to predict if or when another surge could come, and everyone's personal timeline may look a little different, too. I don't think any of us can be sure when our max risk is going to be. Um, My general suggestion is if you're thinking you should get it, then you should probably get it. What's the guidance if you've had COVID-19? The CDC's recommendations focus mostly on the timing of your last shot, but do say, quote, at a minimum, defer any COVID-19 vaccination, including bivalent booster vaccination, at least until recovery from the acute illness and when you're no longer isolating. You may consider giving it three months' time between infection and injection, the CDC adds. For the reason that there's some research uh, showing that if you don't wait 90 days, then your response to the vaccine may be somewhat blunted. Uh, You have good protection from a recent infection. But because the natural immunity from infection is less reliable, getting a vaccine eventually is still recommended. With your Verify, I'm Abby Larico. The director of the Ohio Department of Health, Bruce Vanderhoff, says the new fall boosters help to fight off the Delta, Omicron and new variants. But he says there is concern about whether the virus this winter will pop up again with more events in person and unmasked. The chance for the flu to make a big comeback is very real. I would highly recommend fall flu shots and encourage everyone to stay up to date with their COVID-19 vaccine series. This is particularly important for Ohioans who are most vulnerable. Columbus Public Health and Franklin County Public Health are offering the booster. Kroger is getting shipments to 18 Central Ohio locations. You will have to make an appointment for those. Giant Eagle also is getting the boosters, but you will not need to make an appointment at those stores. An emotional day at the Ohio State House. One dozen women celebrated the start of a new chapter. They graduated from catch court after escaping human trafficking. Now, when these women are arrested, instead of being treated as criminals, the women are treated as victims and given the chance to transform their lives. When I came to catch, I was so scared and alone, and I didn't know who to trust. But you guys held my hand, and that meant the world to me. One by one, 12 women shared their pain. If you would have told the girl that came into this treatment that she would be the woman standing in front of you today, she would have told you that you were crazy. She would have told you she didn't deserve it, that she wasn't good enough for it. But they also shared their triumph over trauma. I can't believe I'm standing up here today. I'm very emotional. (laughs) It was an emotional journey to get here, to be sure. But these women, who have seen the darkest of days, now get to shine. My life was a mess. Um, Drinking every day, crying, no family, alone, lost. It's a place I never want to be again. It starts a new chapter. It's the end of a lot of long work with the beginning to next chapter of a new beginning. Um, It's just amazing. It's showed me what I'm capable of doing if I don't give up and it's opened a lot of doors and it it motivates me to continue moving forward. Being a survivor of human trafficking is, it's honestly, it's a blessing to be alive. It's a blessing to be where I'm at today. I'm proud of her. I'm so proud of her and I know she's going to be all right. 
She's in the hands of God, and she's going to do good. It's absolutely emotional um, for me because I've seen these women um, in their darkest days, and then to see them today celebrating their recovery, their family, um, their love for themselves, um, it truly is what gives me passion to keep doing this work. So it's very emotional. Twelve women graduated, making it the second largest class in catch court history. I'll thank you all so much for being with us today. And remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Brittany Bailey, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy Townsend on what you can see this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. Coming up today on Face the State, the reason a judge put a pause on Ohio's heartbeat law. And one lawmaker says the ongoing abortion battle here could take a toll on a potential business and industry boom. Another Ohio lawmaker takes a TikTok exec to task in the nation's capital. You'll hear that play out. And they walk to school with the goal of integrating classrooms in Ohio, but were turned away every day for two years. The story of the Lincoln Marchers. We have that at 1130 on Face the State. How do you know if you or a loved one is at risk of problem gambling? By knowing the signs, such as borrowing money, hiding unpaid debts, bragging about wins, or just plain irritability. Sound familiar? Get Set Before You Bet is Ohio's initiative to help keep gambling safe and responsible for everyone. How does it work? Just visit BeforeYouBet.org to learn more and take the responsible gambling quiz. Together, we can keep gambling safe and responsible in Ohio. This message brought to you by Ohio for Responsible Gambling. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me, Rita Sorenen, who is the president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. How are you? I'm great. It's great to talk with you. Nice to talk to you. This is a, a foundation probably everybody uh, has heard of, and, and most people around here may be not surprised to know that it's a local effort. I mean, it's a nationwide, even beyond that, but it's uh, it started locally. That's absolutely right, and we're, we're located in Columbus, Ohio, and um, are close to celebrating our 30th anniversary of, of being in place. But we do. We have a nas- national reach. But um, we were created by Dave Thomas, who I think most everyone in Ohio still recognizes as the founder of um, that iconic Wendy's brand. And Dave Thomas was adopted. So as he was nearing the end of his active professional career at the Wendy's company, he wanted to put in place something that really carried out their focus of um, helping and reaching out to communities in which they had business. And because he was adopted, that had a, a, a tie to thinking about starting a, a national nonprofit public charity that was dedicated exclusively to adoption, but even more than that, foster care adoption, those children who were in foster care waiting to be adopted. So, yes, we, we were created locally. We have a, a profound arm-in-arm relationship with uh, the Wendy's company still, their franchisees and corporate and, and suppliers, um, but we're wholly independent and have a, a national, in fact, international reach. We have the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption Canada as well. And Dave Thomas, he's been gone about 20 years now, but it was a remarkable story with him because you see all these, for lack of a better word, pitchmen or women for, you know, like insurance companies or whatever. He was the public face of Wendy's, but 
not just some character actor. I mean, he was the guy that started the whole thing. He was the guy that started the whole thing, so really has two profound legacies, right? Uh, an, an international, global brand, um, those square hamburgers and frosties that, that everybody loves, but then this, this legacy of creating a foundation that, that said we have to do more for the most vulnerable in our community. Um, and we're just honored and proud every day to, to be able to carry on this story of someone who, he was adopted as an infant, but his adoptive mother passed away when he was young. His uh, his adoptive father was a bit of an itinerant worker, so moved from place to place. He was reared by his, his grandmother many uh, much of his life and, and left home at age 16 to strike out on his own. So really understood, I think, very organically the story sometimes of our older youth who are in foster care, who move from home to home, who too often have to make it out on their own. Very much understood that, that, mm, that tone of how do we do better on behalf of some of our most vulnerable children. So it's an incredible story. It's an incredible success story. The, the family is still connected to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption as members of the board and just supporters um, as franchisees. So it's a, it's, a, it's a unique and I think really powerful uh, American story. As you mentioned, the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption has been around for 30 years, and you're in the middle of kind of a growth spurt right now, right? We are. We've, we've been able, both through the, the fundraising that the franchise, significant fundraising in the restaurants that the franchisees do for us, and then attracting other donors, um, we've been able to really look at where can we make sure that um, we're doing the best that we can do for a particular group of children in foster care, and that's those children who are most at risk of turning 18 in foster care and leaving without the family we promised. Uh, understand, these are children who are in care because they've been abused or neglected. And for right now, 117,000 children across the nation and about 3,000 children across Ohio, um, that abuse rose to such a level that the courts permanently severed the families, the birth family's right to that child. So they're legal orphans waiting for families to step forward and adopt. Of course, we believe that children belong in their families of origin and we want to work very hard to keep them there or at least keep them connected to family and community. But for too many of these children, children in sibling groups, teenagers, children with special needs, that movement to an adoptive home becomes compromised. Um, and about 20,000 children every year turn 18 and leave foster care without a family. So we've focused our programs on that very vulnerable population of children. We know what can happen to them if they leave without a family. If you just think about the risk of growing up without that safety net of, of family, they're more at risk of being homeless, of being undereducated, underemployed, all those negative outcomes, not because they're bad kids because they don't have a safety net of family. So we've focused our program on um, creating an evidence-based program that we can give our resources, we're a grant-making organization, to private, large or small, all across the United States and certainly here in Ohio, to hire full-time adoption professionals that use this evidence-based model that works very successfully on behalf of that that at-risk population of children, at-risk of aging, out of care. And we've seen great success across the nation and have been able to, to build our growth based on that success and based on the need uh, across the United States. And from what I understand, these are people that are recruiting foster parents, and you kind of drill down into the kid's life and find out much more about their circle and what makes them tick to match them up with foster parents. That's exactly 
exactly is. So we give a grant to an agency or multiple grants to hire a, a full-time adoption recruiter, and then they focus on a very small caseload of the longest waiting children in that community. But the, 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 this magic sauce behind this is that, right, they do a deep dive into the child's case file. They talk, they develop a relationship with the child. And so they learn both from the child and from the case file where extended family members might be that could um, uh, step forward and adopt aunts or cousins or, or brothers and sisters, frankly, that are that are old enough to do so. Um, and then they also look at who in this child's community um, with whom the child is already connected might be willing to adopt. So former foster parents or teachers or best friend families. We've had so many examples of, of people within the child's community. The last thing we want to do is further traumatize the child and, and you know, send them away from their community or with strangers. Of course, if we can't find someone within those circles, then we'll move to that next level of people who have stepped forward in the foster care system and said, I'd be willing to adopt a child from foster care. But it's a very successful program at finding that all of those people who are already connected to this child and makes it perhaps the maybe an easier transition um, from foster care into an adoptive home. Talking with Rita Sornan, she's president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. You've been there for 20 years, and before that you were the executive director of court-appointed special advocates for Franklin County. Uh, so in a way, kind of a similar role in the in the sense that you were so involved in some of these kids' lives who were trying to find a better way forward. Exactly. You know, my journey and professional journey has been, I've been so lucky, so blessed, because I actually, before the CASA program, I started out in child abuse prevention. So how do we, how do we make sure that um, children don't come into care, families don't come into care? How do we provide the kinds of supports that families need? But when that fails, and they are part of this um, juvenile justice child welfare system, then how do we provide through court-appointed special advocate programs best interest um, guardians ad litem and professional CASA volunteers that can speak up for the child in court? And then I was there about a decade and, and had the opportunity to move here. And so what happens when prevention efforts fail, when our intervention efforts through um, the CASA program um, moves them toward being available for adoption, then this became, for me, I think, a pretty much the full circle of how do we make sure that, that we have the family, of that, that we find the families for these children um, as quickly as possible. They shouldn't linger in care. They shouldn't move from home to home. They shouldn't age out of care without a family. So, yes, it's, it's been an incredible journey for me and one that I've been able to learn every step of the way. I think um, what are the dynamics, what are the gaps, where are the needs in the system that we can make better, hopefully, on behalf of children and families. What has happened to the foster care and adoption world in the era of the pandemic? Oh, gosh. You know, listen, our kids suffered during the pandemic for lots of reasons. They've already come into care with traumatic events in their life or further trauma by being moved multiple times or living in in group homes or institutional care. And so, you know, they were at risk of COVID to begin with just because their their, their physical systems might be compromised, right? But then um, um, they were further separated from um, all of those connections perhaps that they had, particularly when we were in lockdown, so that families couldn't make visits, um, social workers couldn't see them directly. Um, or if they were in institutional care or group care, they were, again, at much more risk of exposure to COVID. And the 
depending on where they lived, if school went um, virtual, you know, if they didn't have real solid um, internet connections, then their, their education was compromised. So many intervening factors that we couldn't have imagined pre-pandemic. The good news is for the Wendy's Wonderful Kids recruiters, we very quickly pivoted to a virtual environment so that we said, you have to stay in touch with these children. Um, you have to figure out a way. And if you can connect with them virtually, great. Do that as frequently as you can. If it's only by phone, connect with them by phone. But our recruiters got really creative and they would drop lunch off and then sit in the car and they on the phone talk to each other while they were eating lunch. So they still kept that connection going. We also advocated in Ohio and across the nation for governors or child welfare agencies to not let children age out of care during the pandemic. Because could you imagine leaving care during a pandemic when getting a job was compromised, when finding housing was compromised and you were all on your own? So the pandemic really built layers and layers of challenges for our kids in foster care. We hoped we did as much as we could to, to make to mitigate against those challenges. Um, and and now, you know, we're beginning to see more kids perhaps coming into care because those reports of abuse went down during the pandemic, but we may be seeing more kids coming into care um, across the nation as well now. And just to give folks an idea of how huge of an effort this is, last year the foundation dedicated more than $40 million in grants to programs for these uh, recruiters and, and other programs that you're associated with. That's right. We, we see ourselves as uh, making sure that we get as many dollars in the door as possible so that we can send those dollars right back out and support these recruiters. And so what we've been able to do in many states is take this program to scale. And what that means is, based on the number of children who are waiting to be adopted, um, can we get the appropriate number of recruiters in place to serve those children. And it becomes a, a really unique public-private partnership that we can upfront philanthropy and say, here, let's get this program scaled quickly. If a state, for example, needs 30 recruiters in order to serve that focused population, we'll upfront the cost to get those recruiters in place, but the state or the county has to make a co-investment, a small one at first, but an increasingly larger one as we begin to see over the years those numbers of children waiting to be adopted declining, and the state begins to see a, a, essentially a, a return on investment. So it's their moral and legal obligation, first and foremost, to get these children adopted, but if we can provide a financial incentive, first through upfront funding and then showing that return on investment, then it's a win-win all around and making sure that these children have permanent homes. So yeah, we, we make sure, and, and again, it's called Wendy's Wonderful Kids, the program we're talking about, because our Wendy's partners really did that lion's share of that initial and, and ongoing uh, fundraising for us in restaurants, selling coupons to customers, doing all kinds of programs to help support this program in Ohio and across the nation. Talking with Rita Sornan, president and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. I know that you recently did uh, an adoption attitudes survey to find out what people think about adoption and foster care. And I'm wondering about that and also just about businesses and incentives. You know, it's it's getting harder for businesses to keep people in this yeah. post-pandemic time. And I'm wondering how that fits into all this. Those are great questions. And, and indeed, every few years, we take a pulse of, of the nation and find out what are the general attitudes about children in foster care, about the system, uh, you know, what is it that perhaps are barriers to folks stepping into the child welfare system to consider fostering or adopting. So the only way we can 
really get a, a real good handle on that is to understand their attitudes. So we've got a number of years. I think this was the fifth time that we've done this, this national survey. So we've got some good benchmarking numbers. And we found some really positive, I think, results this time, that 37% of Americans have considered adopting. And that's up 12% from the last time we did this survey, a significant increase. And of those people who have considered adopting, 82%, and again, this is consideration, have considered foster care adoption as their as a choice for adopting and that increased by about three percent of course there are other kinds of adoption private infant and international and, and we we pulse those as well but we want to make sure that what we do which is to dramatically increase the adoptions of children out of foster care that we take that pulse on foster care adoption a couple of more key points that 75 percent of americans believe we should be doing more we the collective community we should be doing more to encourage foster care adoption again up a significant 11 percentage points and 67 percent of americans believe that every child is adoptable so all all really good news but but honestly dave we still have some work to do because we know that the majority of americans so 60 percent prefer thinking about adopting a child age five or younger which is, you know, I understand that. You know, people think about bringing a child into their family and they want to be able to sort of mold them into the tone of their family. Um, but the reality is the average age of a child waiting to be adopted out of foster care is eight or hovering right around nine years old. Um, and only 3% prefer uh, to think about uh, adopting a child age 13 or older when we've got a lot of teenagers in the foster care system. So our job is to make sure that folks understand that older youth are waiting to be adopted, that there are lots of families that might be thinking about adopting, but they don't necessarily want an infant, and that, that you know, older youth, and by older we mean, again, age eight or older, are waiting to be adopted. The one number that drives me um, to distraction, and, and we really want to work really hard on this every year, keeping in mind that children are in foster care because they've been abused or neglected or abandoned through no fault of their own, but 51% of Americans believe that teenagers are in care because they're juvenile delinquents, because they've done something wrong. So we've got to do some more work to make sure that folks understand the trauma these children have experienced, some emotional or behavior challenges that they may have as a result, but that they deserve as much as any other child a safe and permanent home. So we like to keep track of those numbers. Again, we feel good, but we've got a lot of work to do. And you're right, the question about businesses, it, it plays into this nicely because if we're going to encourage people to adopt, we also have to make sure that they have both the financial and, and the, the emotional and the physical resources to support them in that adoption. And for another a signature program of Dave Thomas, when he was still CEO, he very organically started this notion by talking to other CEOs saying, do you provide benefits to families that are formed through birth in your workplace? And of course, the majority of them said yes. And, and then he would follow up with, well, do you provide benefits to families that are formed through adoption? And he started this campaign of really thinking about parity and equity in the workplace for all families, not just families that are formed through birth. We've taken that on and made it another signature program and every year release a 100 best adoption friendly workplace list so that we encourage um, employers to add um, financial benefits for families who adopt, paid leave or unpaid leave, just acknowledge that families who adopt need that same kind of support. And what we know is that it really engenders a sense of loyalty, a sense of 
commitment to an organization. We even know from talking to potential employers that if they have the choice between two businesses, one has adoption benefits and one does not, they're more likely to pick that, that business with adoption benefits, even if they're not thinking about adopting, it says a lot about the family-friendly nature of the business. So we've got, we actually have a survey that we take every year that, that any business can be a part of. Um, that survey is open now on our website, davethomasfoundation.org, and it's open until I think August 5th, where employers can put, here's what their benefits are, and, and we continue to collect this, this robust database of employers, but then they can become part of that 100 uh, best adoption-friendly workplace list that we published nationally in October and recognizes um, um, uh, employers that do provide these benefits. Well, with over 100,000 kids waiting in the foster care system for a home, it, it seems like, you know, between business incentives and, and federal government incentives with tax breaks and such, that that's a huge element. You would imagine that the 37% of families that you mentioned that are that have thought about doing this, you would think the majority of them are stable homes that would provide a good home for a child. And you're talking about avenues to help, you know, reverse poverty. I mean, there's all kinds of things that could find solutions through this kind of thing. Exactly. And in fact, even I know sometimes we hear from families who are thinking about adopting a teen, but say, but I haven't been able to save for 18 years for college. Well, most states provide some kind of either waiver or, or financial um, assistance for college for kids who have been in foster care or who have been adopted from foster care. And, and you're right, you said something about there are, there are national tax incentives, there are state-based tax incentives for families that adopt. So if it's that financial piece that's um, keeping them from thinking about adopting, we've got lots of resources we can turn people to. If it's just a, a little bit of uncertainty about jumping into the child welfare system, you know, I don't know, I'm afraid the family might try and come back and, and claim this child, or, you know, there's a lot of things that I just don't know about. We can help with that, too. Again, these children have been permanently and legally severed from their family of birth so that the parents can never try and legally reclaim these children. That's not to say if they're older kids that they don't have a connection to extended family members, if they're safe. That's still up to the adoptive family to, to make sure those connections stay sound. We can help walk them through. We've got a beginner's guide to adoption on the website that helps walk people through what are the 10 most common steps from point of entry into a, 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 an adoption agency to that final adoption hearing in court. What are those steps so we can start to demystify uh, the unknown about the child welfare system? And we just encourage people to dig in. You're right. There are lots of people out there, I think, that if they knew more about it, if they understood who these children were, they would jump in with both feet and begin to get more information. So that's what we want to encourage. The times are kind of turbulent. You know, the, the affordable housing situation is getting pretty frightening these days, and it's a, it's a tough time to be a, an older kid slash young adult. On your own doing that without the safety net of family. You know, your car breaks, you're, you're 19 and you aged out of foster care. You found a way to get a job, you found a way to, to get into some kind of housing, and then your car breaks down and you lose your job because you don't want to share with your employer the, the challenges that you're having and suddenly you're homeless uh, because, because housing is so expensive. So I think the best we can do for the 
these young adults is to make sure they've got that safety net of family. Look, we're all probably going to be struggling a little bit financially over the next few years, but imagine being out on your own at 17, 18, 19 and trying to figure that out without some place to just say, I need to stay here for a few weeks, Mom. I need to stay here. I need you to help me with my car, Dad. You know, whatever it is, we, we, those kids deserve that and we owe it to them. Talking with Rita Sornan, President and CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Anything else you'd like to add? I think just that, again, if, if anyone is has thought about it, but they, they sort of self-selected out for whatever reason, we welcome those phone calls. We welcome getting people connected to resources. It's a, it, it is some work to get through the process of, of uh, the, the classes that you're required to take and home studies and getting matched with the child, but the end result is absolutely worth the effort. And with so many amazing, creative, talented young people waiting for uh, homes, I, it feels like a community obligation among all the challenges that we have every day. There's nothing more important than family and community and, and making sure that we have safe and thriving children. And what's the website again? It's DaveThomasFoundation.org. Okay, Rita Sorenen, she's the president and CEO. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I appreciate the time. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.